City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, City Limits, and today on the program, today on the program we've got uh, we've got me, we've got Meg Kimber over there. Morning. Oh, yeah, pressing buttons. Eugenia, I don't know where she is today, but she'll... She's oh. got AWOL. Yeah, she's got AWOL. What do yes. they do to people who go AWOL? <sighs> Put them in front of the court... <sighs> Some sort of... Front of the firing squad. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Is that a fact? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that well used I'm to... not sure, so we'll just take that on. <laughs> that used to be the case. <laughs> Pretty nasty way. Oh. Um, but um, today we're going to be talking to a couple of people. Sonia Rutherford, a uh, prominent long-term activist in the Western suburbs, long-term activist all over the place. In fact, in unions uh, as a member of the May Day Committee for many, many years and still on it. Uh, with her husband Bluey, who was president, who was secretary of the plumbers' union for many years, so they've got a great. I think any people listening to this I know they've got a wonderful background of activity over the years, yeah. and they've long been campaigners around Broad Meadows area for uh, local community assets and mm-hmm. and issues. And Sonia's going to talk to us about that fire a couple of weeks ago. We talked to um, Helen Vandenberg last week about the impact on the environment and waterways, but Sonia's going to talk to us about the impact on the community generally and uh, yeah. how we can stop this sort of stuff. And in that vein, we're going to talk to Paddy today about Paddy Moriarty, of course, is um, a professor out at Monash in engineering areas, but he researches all sorts of things in energy and uh, transport. And we're going to talk to him about following up what Helen said last week, and I'm sure what we'll talk to Sonia about, how do we reduce our use of energy and our use of these sort of chemicals and all that sort of stuff. So we're going to discuss with Paddy Mm. ways of reducing the sort of waste we produce in our society. That will be interesting. Yeah, I always like having Paddy on the show. Oh, good. Well, he's got a lot of info. He's got a lot of knowledge about ev- pretty much everything. He has. I feel like any question I throw at him, he's like, "Well, <laughs> he's got some kind of an answer." That's right. And yeah. as long as you don't know the answer in the first place, you don't know whether he's right or wrong. Of course, <laughs> that's it. That's right. He sounds very Which is intelligent. Just to make the point. I'm going to yeah. pour some tea now. Uh, hang on a tick. I'll just I'll bring it up to the mic. People won't need to hear it. There it is. Click of. Uh, can I have cup. that mug? I like that's one of my favourite mugs. Is it okay? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. The yellow yes. spotty one. My word, you can. Thanks, Kevin. There you are, yellow spotty for you, and pure How do they white allow- for me. I thought that you weren't allowed to have drinks and things in the studio. Shh. <laughs> 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 have you always done it, or is it because yes. now that oh, okay, right? No, it's always always been. Uh, but uh, we mm. just keep. Yeah, that's right. This is a good one. This is like a jasmine yeah. tea. This is, is it? it is straight jasmine. There you one. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, I've, is. I've, it is. My palate is getting very yes. refined. It is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I'm going to have a sip of mine. Hang on a tick. Here we go. I've been told I I got a phone call, a message saying do keep slurping. Um, really? Said, yes, yes, yes. So here Were we go. Were they being sarcastic? No, I think they meant it. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, it was the only call I got in relation to the program, but that's what, that's what it said. <laughs> People are just here for the tea. Oh, yeah, the that's phone's very hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the tea. 
Now, this, I find um, this week um, we've, of course, noticed, you probably noticed there's an election on, I think. What? People, yeah, I think people are going into autumnal autumnal hibernation with elections on, but um, mm. let's hope we can, you know, the hibernation, well, the only people getting excited about the press, about the press gallery, they, they think it's, you know, the greatest thing since whatever. Uh, but everyone else They're is just selling papers, are bored they? out of their minds before day one. Why is press excited if no one else cares? Because aren't they? Oh, they think they think they think the world starts and ends in the bowels of Parliament House. Mm. Whereas we realise it doesn't. In fact, that's where it ends, but it doesn't start. <laughs> Things are pretty weird out there in mm. Canberra. They sure as hell yeah. are. But on that, the one of the issues this week, of course, has been this water buyback. Oh, my god! But we still haven't got round to this story. We're still going to try and get something more definitive on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. But um, yeah. I, I keep asking why we have to buy back water that's a public property anyway. But that's just another issue, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's completely crazy. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Um, that's, that was what They're was, selling yeah. it to the, think, to the companies and then they're buying it back for more than... What the original company paid for it. Well, naturally, you've got to make profit out of this. Water isn't needed. water isn't a public asset; it's a profit profitable asset. But only for the companies, not oh, for well, of course. the government. I mean, good God, what do you expect? Uh. I mean, come on! Uh, it's <laughs> oh, really Meg, weird. I'm sorry. I thought you were more mature than that. <laughs> um, but, I guess anyway. I just don't understand capitalism. <laughs> uh, the trouble is, we do. Yeah. But we can't. We we whatever we try, we can't seem to change it at this stage. But we'll keep working on it. Yeah. But anyway, Barnaby, the old barnacle who um, <laughs> who flogged it off, and he said, "But he and it's you know this company which is which is um, located in the Cayman Islands, at yeah. which time Taylor, the current pro coal minister for coal, was a director of it. Now that um, etc. Uh, they paid eighty million, or just on it's just seventy nine point something, just on eighty million for this water, which everyone agrees was over the odds completely. But Barnacle's excuses, which I find absolutely fascinating, he said, um, he said that he had not, uh, he was not aware of the price. Here he goes. He said he had no involvement in determining the price of the deal or the vendor when he ticked off the agreement as agriculture minister. So what he's saying is I ticked it off and had no idea what we were paying or who we were buying it off, mm-hmm. which for a minister of the Crown who's supposed to be responsible for these things, one might have thought is not the most watertight excuse of all time. How is he still around? I thought he left politics. Oh, no, no, he just left. He got thrown out of the as deputy deputy leader in the the front bench oh, eventually, but he, he didn't uh, he's still he's, no, he's and he's oh. running again for his seat. He's still in parliament. That makes sense now. Okay, yeah. But <laughs> um, but to say it's not my fault because when I signed signed off the agreement to pay that pay this company eighty million, I had no idea how much it was or who the company was. Now mm-hmm. you know that that's what he considers an excuse. So we're looking at a man with not the greatest brain in the world. Yeah, well. Uh, it's extraordinary, yeah. in fact. Uh, what he's really saying is that I signed an agreement as a blank cheque for this company. Yeah. I mean, he didn't know he knew the, what the company was, but he didn't investigate it? He didn't, he's saying he didn't know, know who the company was. He said, I had no involvement in determining the price of the deal or the vendor when I ticked off the agreement as agriculture minister. He must have seen what the price in the vendor was, but he had, wasn't involved in negotiating it. 
Well, he had no idea of the price. He said, because <laughs> when I, I'm going on his... He's a busy man, taking his, <laughs> That's right. They put things man. across his desk. Yeah. He just signs them away. What can you do? Barnaby, you know? sign away. <laughs> uh, that's right. I heard someone on the radio, on Radio National defending um, the guy who'd been overseas for more of the time that he'd been... Um, well, not more, yeah. but for most of the time. Now, that was Christensen, the bloke, George Christensen, yeah. Yeah, and someone else was defending him and, and was just saying, like, look, he's a... He's allowed to have a relationship, like yeah, <laughs> whatever. That's right. <laughs> I was just like, it, like as if everyone was accusing, you know, him of just like not being allowed to have a relationship. I was like, that's not the issue. Like that's mm. real. Like anyway. And that he that he you know he, he apparently so like he claims he paid for all the flights himself, but mm. there's now speculation that at least we paid for parts of them. And there, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, all this stuff comes back to the topic that we've had um, discussed on the show before about the anti-corruption commission, mm. like um, Hannah Orby, who was on the show, who and was part of the Australia Institute. Um, campaign for that, which eventually got bipartisan support, like after Labor took it up, then the Liberals begrudgingly, after they, you know, didn't weren't really holding the balance of power very strongly, then also said that they would do it. Yeah. But basically, it all comes back to that, really, because it's sort of, um, you know, these uh, flights and, and kickbacks and perks and, you know, what it actually then sometimes looks like collusion or... Mm. or Worse, the yeah, expenses um, and trouble allowances for pollies are a very uh, fraught sort of area for them. And signing off on things to give massive amounts of money to your friends. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's right. And and in fact, the um, you know, we know that in the Basin Darling, Murray mm. Darling Basin, the com- the commission um, Barnaby made some appointments of close friends in the National Party, etc. At, the, at yeah. the point when it came out that in New South Wales they'd they'd rorted the system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there we are. Mm. But that's the case. I mean, they come. They get have to get dragged screaming to these commissions, like right. the mm. like the Banking Royal Commission. You know, the government yeah. finally had to give in. It had no choice. Yeah. Uh, but also on the uh, Royal Commission into people with disabilities or disability issues. Yeah. Uh, they were drags kicking and screaming after fighting it for ages. Then when he launched it, there was Morrison in tears saying how much he cared for people with disabilities. I thought, well, you could have mm-hmm. got this sorted out a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, Scotty, Scotty boy. Uh, <clears throat> now, this is an interesting one. Glencore, the big international coal company, um, was uh, <laughs> exposed pretty heavily in the Paradise Papers a couple of years ago, those papers that came out showing how companies had tax dodges all over the world and all uh-huh. that sort of stuff and were avoiding. And the tax office is um, is taking the court wanting to use using the Paradise Papers oh. as, um, as evidence that it, they owe the government here, you know, tr- trillions of dollars, not quite trillions, but a lot of money. Um, and Glencore's now got a case before the High Court um, arguing that, in fact, the, the government, the tax office, can't use the Paradise Papers because it breaks the confidentiality between lawyers and clients because a lot of them are uh, related to their relationship with their lawyers and the advice they got on tax, etc., of how to avoid tax. Okay. Um, but they're not going too well. The High Court's now reserved its decision but there were some some indications in the last week in the last in the case, because um, Patrick Keane, one of the High Court judges, uh, took issue. I'll read the report with Glencore's claim that there would be ad- adverse consequences for legal advice if it could not if it 
could not thwart the ATO, that's the tax office. You root your argument in considerations of the due administration of justice, Justice Keane suggested to Glencore's counsel Ian Jackman SC. Is there not a problem that the administration of justice would be a bit of a joke if a court was confined to information that the whole world knows is either wrong or inadequate in coming to its decisions? <laughs> and he goes on to say, um, and, and, and Virginia Bell, another High Court judge, contested Jackman's claim that the balancing has already been done in favour of legal privilege, saying it was somewhat different when a court was being asked to rule on material which is in the public domain. Uh, Keane noted the case, the case relied on by Glencore was not concerned with information known to the whole world that would tend to falsify the determination by a court made in ignorance of it. And toward the end of the day's hearings, Jackman said Glencore would embrace a rule that prevents protected communications from being used against the interests of the person entitled to a secure space. But the Silk again found Justice Keane waiting when he said the refusal to return the documents was reason alone to justify an injunction because there is a threat by the Commissioner to use them otherwise. Justice Keane, even if he uses them to get the actual right result. Um, what? I think I would have to read that slowly to myself. Yeah. Well, what they're really saying is that the Glencore's saying that we've got our privilege is being abused and we want an injunction so they can't use these papers against us in a court case. And the court's saying, well, it's already out there. Everyone knows it. The papers were made public. Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, we can't... Uh, plus plus, yeah, yeah, plus yeah. the last comment was, if the papers are used, justice will be served, effectively what he's saying, whereas yeah. if we can't use them, justice won't be served. That's really what he was saying. Yeah, like, how, I mean, it's pretty tricky to ask for something to be, like, out of the public record when it's in the public record yeah. and then not to be used against you. That's, That's right. pretty That's right. That's strange. Right. Well, they're, 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 they're really saying, look, we, we don't want the evidence against us to be used against us so we can uh, not be found good. That's what they're saying. Well, I'm sure everyone feels like that when <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they go to court. <laughs> Oh, yes, there's been many a time. <laughs> Look, let's take a break and we'll get Sonia Rutherford on the line. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. Hey, Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now put this in your diary, the 26th to the 29th of April. The inaugural Birrarunga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations and even virtual reality. Now head to www.birrarunga.world. That's B-I-R-R-A-R-A-N-G-G-A.world and book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. OK, on the line, Sonia Rutherford. We mentioned earlier in the show, Sonia's got a long history of... Uh, 
don't want to put age on you, Sonia, but a long history of activity in community affairs, union affairs, May Day committee, etc. And, um, of course, one of the key activists in the Broadmeadows area, and here there was that fire last um, couple of weeks ago, April 3, whatever day it occurred, April 5, I think it was. Um, and, uh, Sonia, public meetings since then, but let's go back to the, the day itself. Um, this is not an uncommon occurrence, unfortunately, in your part of the world these days, is it? No, 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 it's not. Um, it's one of many fires that we've had over the past uh, four or five years. Um, I'm just looking at a list of them. We had a very big fire uh, from Waste Dumped 2015. We had the Big Tire Fire 2016. The SKM Fire, we had four in 2017. The fourth was the big one. Then we had a carpet fire. In uh, King Street nearby, 2018, and then again we had uh, the SKM fire this year, a small one, and then and then we also had, um, of course, then the big fire that we've had, just the recent one, that's taken so much attention and drawn um, a government's attention finally, uh, just last Friday, or this Friday, the ninth mm. of April, mm. Mm. and uh, yes, and the effects of it. Yes, we're all looking at it and we all have opinions and we must say that we've detected as residents going to these meetings called by the council, government, etc., that there is a coming together of the authorities who genuinely want to resolve the matter but I think until now are being handicapped by being properly resourced by the state government and the state government recognising that this is a real issue, uh, not just pertaining to our area where working people live and where factories are, but for the whole of the uh, Melbourne area. Why do you think that the state government hasn't wanted to address it? <clears throat> well, you, 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 because it's a large question, yeah. and a lot, and the actual build-up really starts with the um, uh, preference given in uh, to private industry mm. over residents in the area. When you deal with them as a resident for some reason or other, you'll find that there's regulations uh, that in actual fact say uh, if these regulations are, uh, um, processes are met, if you've ticked all the boxes, then you as an industry have the right to uh, exist. Mm. But you add to that, it's governed not by inspectors, but by self-regulation. Mm. And that's an overall government trend everywhere. Mm. And self-regulation in this case has shown up to be what it is, totally uh, inadequate. So we've... And, and what, what has occurred because of uh, that process um, and because the producers of the problem and the waste, uh, once they've produced it, and found someone to take it, they absolve themselves of any responsibility. Mm. Um, and so they go on producing waste. Um, so these things combined um, have uh, created a problem. And what, what's occurred is that the councils, and uh, I speak for councils, hands are tied mm. uh, because we've had just um, this year, Christmas, Bradbury are the people who had the, were responsible for the big fire. Mm. They made application to council for a permit 
and for another warehouse they were intending to extend, now we know, just a few streets away. And their permit that they're applying for, council really had no legal right to refuse because they agreed to self-regulation, they agreed to tick the box, and no one had told council of their previous uh, record, poor record, mm. where they were fined considerably 2016. So you had all these uh, processes isolated. The mm. governing at all is the uh, self-regulation and the right of the industry to uh, operate over the interest of residents. Mm. Bradbury, of course, the, the EPA had been... Um, had been monitoring them, it had been warning them, it ordered them to clean up, it argued that they were they had far too much um, material on the site than they had a permit for. And yet at a meeting, I heard the uh, uh, on the telly report of one of your meetings, the EPA said that they had to give the company time, etc. It seems to me they almost bend over backwards at times to appease the company rather than the community. Yes. Uh, and that is a general trend in many other areas as well, but we're dealing here with uh, uh, waste and, and fires. Yes, that is correct. You see, it's ludicrous. I remember seeing a report that EPA went uh, initially in February to one of the um, uh, what they suspected to be illegal dumps, and they couldn't go in because the gate was locked. I mean, what nonsense. Mm. <laughs> All they need is a good set of bolt cutters. <laughs> We've known over the years, one, uh, Sonia, how to get through gates. All right, haven't we? <laughs> so, but but you see, they did. They they are hesitant because they have this, um, uh, you know, uh, history of uh, of curtailment, and um, yeah. And yeah, and technically, from what you're saying, they're actually. Uh, in air quotes, um, they are regulated, but they're not in practice. No, yeah. because they rely on self-regulation. Yeah, and uh, and that, and that's the problem. I mean, it horrified us when we look at Bradbury's mm. uh, residence in um, February this year. We became aware of this new application for another warehouse a few blocks away. Uh, that and they said that they were going to have four. They were going to decant. Um, uh, flammable and poisonous chemicals mm. um, four or five trucks a day they said and they would have two employees Wow! Uh, mm. and they thought that was okay and um, at council uh, we, we're not quite sure what, you know, what was going on there but uh, we were just starting to take this particular one up with them when the fire occurred and then it all become exposed Yeah, and, and of course during this during this whole period of these series of fires, they increasingly find all these warehouses stocked with chemicals they didn't know were there, and usually many more than even if they had a permit they'd be allowed to have there. And yet it just seems to go on at this stage. I mean, something really does have to happen urgently, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly does. Uh, WorkSafe have estimated at the moment that there's another, they estimate, 11 million litres stored within the same area. And they have removed 1.7 million litres from one factory <clears throat> so far. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, so, so there, there, there is an awareness uh, of the problem because they can't hide it. Yeah. Because, and, and the other thing, when the plume goes up, what concerns us is we live very close to the tyre factory just down the road, and we're we're within two kilometres of 
all these other fires. And we've been lucky because of the weather, mm. because it took the plume up and fortunately went over the whole of Melbourne, so makes them aware of us, except in the SKM fire when there was quite a lot of fallout and uh, problems close by. So our health in our area depends entirely on the weather and the luck. Mm. Now, that's not tolerable. At one of the meetings, um, one of the people from the EPA uh, in authority uh, was asked what would happen if the plume had not gone up. She said there would have been hundreds of deaths. So it's, it's, we can't um, tolerate this any, any longer. No. It has to be addressed with government input. The things that the people have raised is that all the barrels should be tagged with some electronic, and I see that I think the council is going to start uh, looking at that. Yeah, the, the government has, has said the EPA will have some sort of electronic monitoring system going by in a few months, I think they said July, mm. uh, to trace all this from birth to death, so to speak. I hope death isn't too much yeah, there, no, but, that's correct. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens. But um, e- even if you're tracing it, um, you've still got to do something about it, haven't you? Um, you have. Yeah. And so long as the producers of the waste are out of the uh, responsibility area, mm. it's, it's going, it, it, it opens up a field for the cowboys. If I can mm-hmm. just explain, for instance, um, well, you, 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 you produce a certain amount of liquid waste as part of your process in the factory, you get out your little list, you see all the people who will recycle it, you pick the cheapest one, uh, and they're competing. Mm. So uh, then they, they take the, uh, the liquid uh, from you, and you wipe your hands. You're fin- mm. finished. Now, the, the producers of the waste also have to be in the, um, in the cycle of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And it makes them then question... If it's expensive to get rid of it, and I can't just give it to someone cheap to do it illegally, mm. uh, then maybe I should look at, do I need to have this waste? Can I myself change the system? Mm. Or will I be prepared to add that cost to my production to probably uh, get away with it? Until that's done, you won't address the cowboys and you won't address the illegal. In England, they say that uh, getting rid of, illegally of waste has more profitable than the... Um, the drug traffic. Wow. Anyway, the other thing too is that we, do, as you've raised just then, we do have to look at the cause of the of the waste. And the other side of it, just maybe before we speak of that, is the effects of it um, are drastic after the episode has finished. When the SKM fire took place, which burned for eleven days. The water retardant used to, to quell the fire mm. uh, poisoned all our Merlston Creek right down to Merry Creek mm. and into our lake. And our lake, uh, where we have a lot of recreational activities, was closed uh, for 12 months. Uh, it was just opened in uh, July last year mm. and now, presently, a glass recycling factory next door to Bradbury uh, had a spillage into our creek and, and now, this is not a fire, this is just an ongoing process. Now again, we can't use the lake for the recreational sport, uh, etc. And uh, the Footscray fire, the people were saying in their particular uh, creek, I forget just the Stony name. Creek. Stony Creek. Stony yeah. Creek, that's correct. Um, it's polluted and destroyed and uh, mm. it, and it's an ongoing process. And then who pays for the, for, for the clean-up of it? 
and they all all those waterways end up in the Yarra and ultimately the uh, the bay. That's correct. So it has wide implications. But while we're looking at the at the results of, of, of this, how to dispose of our recycles, which we must do, so that we can at least be feel safe, uh, we need to now look at the question of the actual recycling itself. Mm. And um, I'm, I know that the SKM, for instance, uh, were reo. Were, were actually stopped this year. Their permit was taken away, and the fines they get are fifteen thousand, mm. sixteen thousand, um, and another one, uh, SKM was twenty five thousand. I mean, they're, they're, they're absolutely, absolutely nothing. Mm. But but it, the the material that's flammable is not only liquids. It's the plastics, the um, uh, you know the the paper. Uh, the other waste that goes in generally and is all mixed up up together. So we have to look at, at the responsibility of the uh, waste material and starting with people by not having plastic bags is an awareness, but it's it's not really mm. the crux of the matter because uh, the whole of our society depends on people keeping buying. Mm. So they have built-in obsolescence. If I've got my... Um, jug, electric jug, which I did have. A little part of it went. I can't get it mended. They don't want it mended. So out on the tip it goes. Mm. The same with the furniture. The same with um, the clothing. They put in crook elastic and you can't wear undies without elastic. So out goes your undies. The, uh, the, 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 the clothing industry, they have fashions. You've got to throw this out, etc. So this whole process of uh, creating waste is really a product of how we're organising our society at the moment, and we have to address that. Mm -hmm. Indeed, after we speak to you today, we're going to be talking to Paddy Moriarty from Monash um, about this very issue, how do we reduce our use of materials and our our use of energy in our society, yeah? Yes, but you're going to have to actually tackle the whole question of um, businesses, Mm-hmm. Oh, well, because their whole business, <clears throat> the waste is an actual fact, a product of their process. Yeah. And they they don't care because they, they, they give you a dress, you throw it out, they make a new one. They don't care about what happens to your dress mm. uh, that, you, that they've encouraged you to throw away. And in the case of these um, stockpiling of materials around the western suburbs um you're you're you make a really good point that um if the actual cost of uh of um getting rid of that waste was actually a burden upon the producer of the waste then they would think twice about how much waste they actually produce but as it is they can sell it to the lowest bidder and then it's completely out of their hands yes but um i i was interested that you said that the um when you met with the, you know, the groups, the council, the EPA, and things like that, that you felt that they actually did want to change something. Yes. Can you give us yes, a f- yes. an idea of a, what they're saying? We we had a, a recent meeting, which um, you know we really <coughs> uh, congratulate <coughs> the authorities and our council for doing. Mm. Um, is that the people who are in the fire brigade, the people in council who are in the uh, uh, you know the, the regulation, the permit department, giving departments. They're generally good people, and they have a job and they want to do it well. Mm. And they can see the problems, 
but they're curtailed by the regulations. Uh, but uh, now that the problems are coming to a head, mm. they have the knowledge of what, uh, together, collectively, when the fire brigade, the Melbourne Water, uh, EPA uh, councils get together, they've got a pool of knowledge as to how, first of all, to treat uh, successfully and, and, and uh, properly uh, the catastrophes mm. as they occur. And in doing, discussing that, they also throw up ideas as to where the gaps are and where the uh, needs, uh, needs lie. Mm. For instance, in the current one, the Bradby fire, um, the, it, it was much, the recovery was much, very, very efficient. Because they've had plenty of practice, unfortunately. Yes. What happens is up in that area they have what they call a wetland, um, which allows uh, uh, flows, uh, you know, mistaken ones, to actually have a place to go rather than the creek. So when the fire started, the fire brigade did their their work, uh, and etc. Uh, and others and the traffic did theirs, and the water people came straight in and blocked off every drain. So uh, while the fire was going and channeled every, all the water to go into the wetlands. So we stopped the poison going of retardant going down our Millstone Creek. Yeah, Melbourne Water, in fact, said very little would have. They said it may be a little bit would have, but very little would have got into Millstone right. Creek. Yeah. So, so they're, they're, they're coming together to act over an incident is actually bringing cohesion and awareness, mm. uh, breaking down that. And, and so that, that, that's good. Now, unfortunately, uh, what's happened with us is that the glass uh, recycling thing next to Sunbury, uh, to Bradbury's had, had a spill into Millston Creek and put E. coli. And we were hoping that the retardant would kill the E. coli at least, but um, <laughs> that's just a <laughs> It's ongoing, isn't it? It is. It's an ongoing, <laughs> ongoing, ongoing process, but... Um, it, it, it's one that uh, needs people to um, uh, listen to those that have experience and the variety of people, whether it's the fire brigade, uh, whether it's the uh, water people, with council, etc. They have the knowledge, mm. and the residents have the experience. Yep. And collectively, um, uh, there needs to be, you know, consultation, and the government to actually do something uh, uh, rather than just say, you know, oh, we're aware, et cetera, et cetera, a knee-jerk reaction. They actually have to challenge industry mm. uh, for the good of industry in itself. And I can say one other small thing that you don't realise, and I didn't till then, till I was at the meeting. There's around Bradbury's fire, there are many small businesses. And because of the fire they have to call on their insurance because they had to send their workers home and there was damage to their property. Now the insurers won't insure them. So the, the small businesses are now required either to go without insurance or pay a million-odd dollars to uh, put in new structure of sprinklers, etc., in case of fire. So, so the effects are now spreading out beyond the welfare of people uh, mm -hmm. also businesses around are being affected, and <clears throat> you wouldn't be aware of these things. Mm, just uh, going. No. I was going to say you mentioned workers there. Are the the worker injured um, directly injured in this when this thing exploded at um, at Bradbury's uh, was a, a <clears throat> refugee from Sri Lanka, 
And I noticed they had lots of other refugees. I mean, is there also a concern about their treatment of workers, exploitation of these sort yes. of refugees? Yes. It's, it's another side effect. It's like the La Crosse fire in town when they had the cladding and it exploded the, exposed the, uh, um, uh, the landlord's um, exploitation of students. You know, when they, had, they found that there were 20 or 30 living in one unit. I don't know if you remember that, but it did. Mm. And it exposed that. And what this one has exposed in this fire was that, that uh, Bradbury was told they had to get rid of um, uh, 100,000 uh, litres uh, within a certain time. So they, as we understand, I have to say this is uh, listening, and et cetera, uh, they contacted the labour hire and the labour hire sent out two people. The fire started just before seven. Only people, as we understand, are at that plant was those two people. Amazing. The rest of the workforce didn't come mm. in until later. Wow. Um, it raises a whole question of, um, I mean, and that these two people, if there's not some some other not good aspect to it, if it's just straightforward, they were just uh, taken on. They're desperate for a job. They would be cheap because they, the company Bradby wants to get the job cleaned up cheap. They would have no experience mm. with handling of liquid. Mm. And um, so, so, so even before it explodes, there's health hazards for those workers. Oh. Uh, and we, we've heard uh, again from people who worked in the area, around that area, that speak to people who are. You've got to remember, everyone is being bullied by fear of losing their job. Mm. Yeah. So, you look. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've got to go to our next interview. Um, but no, yeah, we could have gone on forever. I think. Um, yeah. But look, thanks for your time today, and we'll keep monitoring it with you, and um, and hope that the government does start to listen a lot more to your suburbs. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much for okay. the opportunity. Well, thanks to for coming point. on, Sonia. You've been wonderful. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Sonia Rutherford there, who's a well-known activist. Toby Pascoe, a listener, um, said in the thing saying, Sonia said self-regulation is inadequate. He says self-regulation is fatal demonstrably. And I think that's pretty yeah. much the case, unfortunately. <sighs> Gosh. Yeah, I hope that the, that the fact, like, it's hopeful that, Sonia was saying about how the actual fire, water, EPA council and everything and residents all want this to change. Yeah. Maybe they will, but I mean, it'll be interesting to talk to Patty about um, how we actually deal with the fact that we have so much waste, both domestic and industrial. What a segue to go to Patty. Isn't that good? <laughs> <laughs> Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. Okay, and we just talked to Sonia Rutherford about the, the fire out there at um, Campbellfield and the dangers involved, and we talked about the need to, in fact, generate less of that material in the first place, etc. And um, Patty Moriarty out at Monash, our old mate Professor Moriarty, uh, real name, uh, is on the line. And Patty, um, 
petty people. Since these fires and the, the, the massive amounts of chemicals that people are discovering are being stored illegally in many of these places, uh, there has been have been calls for a reduction in the use of these materials. But long term, there's also calls for reduction in energy generally. Um, but can we achieve this? I mean, can we do it? Um, I think we're going to have to. There, I guess the bad news is that there is enough fossil fuels to last, uh, to certainly to um, there's certainly enough fossil fuels available to give us a climate catastrophe, right? So yeah. if, if we do reduce fossil fuels at, at this stage, it looks like it's going to be demand-led rather than um, uh, availability-led, right? In other words, it's going to be demand rather than production, which curtails, uh, or, or geology, which, which curtails in, in um, fossil fuel energy use. Mm. Um, it, the climate scientists speak in terms of a carbon pie or a carbon dioxide pie. In other words, how much is left? How much can the world burn uh, before uh, we reach, say, the 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial limit or the 2 degrees? And that um, that carbon pie is getting smaller and smaller every year. Every year, because we produce about um, we. Uh, we put about 40 billion uh, tonnes of uh, carbon dioxide into, into the atmosphere each year, and it stays there for quite a long time. So, in other words, it's just a cumulative thing. Hmm. That's not good news then, because um, governments around the world are not being... I mean, people... There's all the climate accords and everything, and obviously the United States uh, dropped out, um, but generally, even though everybody signs these things, not much seems to happen. No, no. Um, in, in fact, our main, uh, what we've mainly done so far about climate change is ignore the problem. I mean, yeah. we, hold, we hold conferences and so on. The trouble is that there's a scoreboard, right? And this is on Wanalaa on the slopes of Hawaii. Uh, they measure the carbon dioxide concentration of the atmosphere. And since carbon dioxide is well-mixed gas, mm. that's more or less the same as the worldwide one. There are small differences between the northern and the southern hemisphere, but basically, and that scorecard says that whatever we're talking about, that's going up each year. Right, mm. it's now 410 parts per million. When I was at school, was we used to say 0.03 or 300 parts per, per million, right? So it was probably a little bit more than that, but it's gone up a lot since then. Um, yeah, so uh, it looks like we're not going to. The, I don't think we have a hope in hell of um, of not breaching the 1.5 degrees C limit, mm. uh, given given the state of politics. There's also another problem, and that is who goes first, right? If you have a look at, uh, I mentioned before that because carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere a long time, cumulative emissions are also important. Now, most of the cumulative emissions are by the Western in, in, in industrial countries, right? Mm. Now, mm. If, if that was still the case, then it would be very simple. Um, the, the Western, or formerly industrial countries, you might call them, um, would have to uh, reduce their emissions the most. But the trouble is today that uh, at one stage, for instance, in 1965, I think about 70% of the emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, were from the OECD. Today it's 30%. Hmm. In other words, China's the world's largest emitter, but per capita, it's much less, right? Mm -hmm. And as far as historical emissions, it's much less. So we can't do it without China. But they're going to say, um, "Look, you guys uh, have to pay, have to have to reduce the most," which means it's going to be very hard to get an international accord on that, right? I mean, even if even if the governments were willing, and even if the, the fossil fuels and corporations didn't exist, right? So there's huge problems in getting it. Plus, of course, there's this growth economy that the economy has to be bigger next year than last year and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. All this counts against us doing anything. And there's also the factor, isn't there, of um, 
lobby groups from industry. Well, well that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. The, and that makes it very difficult. Plus, of course, the governments of um, Brazil and uh, and America and you know and uh, uh, Poland wants to, to protect its coal miners, and we want to protect our coal mines, and so on and so on. Right? Yeah. Now, poor old Bill Shorten's got a real problem with Adani at the moment, of course, yeah. for that very yeah. reason. Uh, do you appease the south or the north? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. but it is a it is a major problem. Um, but uh, but again, he's saying Adani. If Adani meets all the lawful uh, lawful regulations, etc., it's okay. But again, we've got surely we have to start looking at the regulations that can allow something like Adani to go ahead in the current climate. Well, yeah, we? yeah. Um, so the question is, what is, is to be done? Right? It looks like we can't meet um, 1.5 degrees C. It's partly because of the time frame. Even if we did have the solutions, and I've been, I think that. Um, I mean, I think we do have to move to 100% fossil fuel, but it's not going to be easy. Um, there may 100% be the... non-fossil fuel, you mean? Yeah, I think I... You said <laughs> fossil. Still short and lived. So, um, but it's not going to be easy, and it certainly isn't going to be achieved overnight. What you find, if you plot, if you plot global fossil fuel um, use against global non-fossil fuel, you, you find that both are rising together. In other words, one isn't substituting the other. They're both going up in a linear fashion, right? Yeah. Mm. So um, if we stick to this present path, nothing is going to happen. Nothing is going to change. In fact, it could get worse because it's going to get harder and harder to win uh, fossil fuels from the ground. In other words, you've got to transport them further. You've got to spend more energy digging them out than you did before because they're deeper down or they're thinner seams or or they're uh, non-conventional fuels or they're in the Arctic and so on, right? Mm. So, and, um, and, of course, with climate changing, um, more and more people are going to want air conditioning and so on. So... It's mm. going to be very difficult. Uh, what we're doing, as I mentioned the carbon pie before, there is really several inequalities. In, in One is between uh, present, the, the, uh, present people on Earth. There's a, a factor of a 1,000 in terms of kilowatt hours per year consumption of electricity from Eritrea or Ethiopia compared with Iceland or Norway, right? A 1,000 times. Right? right, so there's a huge inequality there. Mm. There's also um, intergenerational inequality. If we we may have um, to use up the, the carbon pie for 1.5 degrees C. We probably have till about 2030, right? In other words, we're going to use it all up. There'll be nothing left for the next succeeding generations, maybe hundreds of them, and so on, or thousands of them. Mm. So, um, and it's just very hard to to meet that uh, present inequality with the intergenerational inequality and so on, plus the fact that climate change is not the only environmental problem we're looking at, right? So what is to be done? The answer is we have to cut down our energy use enormously, right? In other words, we've got to cut down the amount of um, energy-using machines we use and the frequency with which we use them and so on or own them. Uh, that's going to have to happen. So years ago they talked about um, converge and, and contract. In other words... We're going to have to move down to the lower energy uh, level of, of the uh, uh, to lower energy levels rather than uh, lower energy countries moving up to us, right? Mm. Uh, in other words, we've got to um, look at the positive aspects of how they managed with a, a low energy society. In other words, we, we have to learn a bit from them rather than vice versa because high energy lifestyles are not on in the future, right? So we've got to learn about the more creative ways that they manage the low-energy society. Yeah. I mean, an example of that, um, and I talked about it in an interview recently, but uh, uh, when I was in 
Bougainville years ago in one of my quixotic attempts to stop the mine back in 69. Um, we stayed one night at a at a white doctor's place that was up there from Queensland, which had air conditioning of sort of a Glen Waverley brick veneer type house on Bougainville. Uh, another night we spent in the village of um, the local member Paul Lapoon. Uh, and of course, the villagers knew exactly how to circulate the air and use the environment um, without electricity or energy. Well, well that's what, what is called passive solar energy. Now, this is a very interesting term. The term active solar uh, the term active solar energy refers to some some device that you use, right? It's interesting that we use the term passive. In other words, if you have to use your intelligence and open doors or shut doors or open windows or um, move to this room rather than that room, that's called passive, right? Which is exactly the wrong term because it does take the active participation. Turning on a switch is regarded as active. Doing all these other things is regarded as passive. We've just got the wrong term for it, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about how we how we go about conserving energy because you know you that what you've raised is, is needs to be done, but how do we get there? Well, I think first thing is we're going to have to um, say the end of economic growth. We're going to have to plan for what, um, especially a number of economists in Spain and Greece and France are calling degrowth. Right? Mm. We're going to have to plan for winding down. Now, some people think that low growth will be the new normal. Uh, and that is conventional economists are thinking this. Um, mm. As we saw from the last global financial crisis, that's not the way to go. What we want is planned de- degrowth rather than it just happening, right? Because of uh, mm. greed or something, right? Mm. So, and uh, energy efficiency. Well, if, for instance, with cars, I mean, there's not much point in having energy efficiency if we can't afford to use them anyhow. And what we're going to have to look at is, as I say. Um, Changing lifestyles. In other words, look at what we want. We want access rather than mobility. We want, we don't want the rooms heated. We want ourselves, our bodies, to be um, 35 degrees or something. You see what I mean? The, uh, and we have to look at such things as um, dressing, work, uh, going to work if anyone does, um, dressing for climate beforehand rather than, like in many cases, having to put on a uh, jumper when you get to work. Because the air conditioning is too cold, right? Mm. In other words, people wearing suits in a climate which is heating is not a very good idea. Also, going in and out of air-conditioned buildings into the sun and back again, you can't get acclimatised. You can't get acclimatised, which means that, again, you can't tolerate the high temperatures, right? So, in other words, all these lifestyle things have to change. It seems like, um, you know, are people modelling, like, what the ideal sort of economy looks like in the future that is not a climate catastrophe, you know, that doesn't impact badly on the on the climate and the environment? No, no, a lot of it's just business as usual, which doesn't look like, it, like it's going to get us very far, right? This calls for what, what you might call utopian thinking. In other words, yeah. um, all right, you can call it utopian, but the alternative is worse, right? It's yeah. a, it's a dystopia. Mm. Really, we really need new ideas and modified business as usual is not going to get us there and that's all that anyone's talking about at present, right? Well, yeah, because the idea is that um, if you just keep on making things that are quote-unquote bad, more expensive, then people will stop doing it. But what actually happens is that just rich people keep on doing it and then you have further and further gap between the rich and the poor. Well, as I say, if you have a carbon tax, what you get is a nicer class of energy user, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great, Patty. But I I mean, I think when you... 
truncate or, or bring or just put into simple terms what industry is really saying when governments and industry say we we must address climate change but we must also balance it with the impact on the economy yeah, what yeah. they're really saying is we can't afford to save the world aren't they no 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 because it hurt the economy the economy has sort of been set aside from humans i mean <laughs> A long time ago, in fact, in Western countries, about 30 years ago, there was a divergence between GDP per capita as a welfare measure and what other measures, such as the genuine progress indicator, which takes in, a, in a, uh, account of, any, of inequality, uh, pollution and so on, right? In other words, that's been going down. But the, but the GDP per capita has still been going up, so who's it for? You know, it's not for the ordinary people. It's a really good question. Yeah, yeah. We, we won't even take it as rhetorical. We know the answer, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of our listeners would know the answer to that yeah, as well. Yeah, right, right. Um, on, um, we were talking earlier, of course, about the chemical fires that have been going on and the overstocking of chemicals. Again, I mean, the answer to that is just simply to reduce the, the amount of that that you're creating in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, well, we might have to. So the, one of the... Um, People now talk about a food, uh, water, energy nexus, but it's actually food, water, energy, materials nexus. In other mm. words, it takes water to get energy, it takes energy to get water, it takes energy to get food, and so on and so on. And um, materials, for instance, uh, the amount of energy needed to get one, say, uh, a kilogram of, of, of refined copper is going up now, right? Mm. In other words, what we do is we look for the cheapest, um, for the best uh, the highest grade ores in the world, those that are, you know, the highest percentage copper in the um, ore and those that are closest to the surface and so on. And we use them up. And eventually you get to the stage where you have to dig deeper or um, it's the wrong type of ore and so on where it's, you know, harder to chemically separate and this sort of thing. So um, not only are we having problems getting... Uh, if, if, if we move to renewable energy, keeping present energy levels, but we're going to have to use an increasing amount to dig up necessary um, metals. Mm, mm. One guy actually suggested, one researcher actually suggested that with copper, um, because uh, copper is a long-lasting element, we do tend to recycle it, and we, um, there should be quotas on each country. In other words, we should try to move to everybody having the same amount of copper stock per capita, right? Mm. Um, because it's it's a reasonably scarce. Uh, a scarce element. Hmm. So uh, that's another way of thinking about, um, especially scarce materials. Things like aluminium is not a scarcity; it's just that it takes a lot, lot of energy to produce re- refined aluminium. And so on. yeah, the other thing about materials and and things is that this idea that um, recycling um, effectively deals with the waste material. When in reality, we know now because China has, re- has just recently refused to keep on taking the waste of the world. Uh, um, that in actual fact what happens is that it just uh, distances the producers from the outcomes of where their waste ends up. Um, exactly, yeah. So and another thing is that, um, say, with using materials more efficiently, this is very interesting, with, say, say platinum in three-way catalytic converters, they're trying to get a small amount of platinum you know, per converter as, as possible. The trouble is when you use a small amount, it's not worth recycling. Right. And also... Mm. Um, See, if, if, if demand for some element is growing fast, recycling won't, won't cover it. You still need new material. Yeah. Recycling is not new. About 95% of the uh, gold in the world is still being recycled, right? People don't throw it away much, right? There's no point checking your neighbour's uh, garbage cans and look for uh, ingots of gold. You won't find it. <laughs> I'm going to have to stop doing that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've just shattered my day, Patty. <laughs>
I'm yeah. going to stop doing it now. Because originally the idea with China was that they were accepting the waste because then uh, sort of like backyard um, uh, scavengers could sort of take things apart and pull out usable yeah. materials yeah. and reuse them. But China now has their own economy and uh, of, of like resources that they want to get in a different way and they don't want the waste products from those Yeah, it's the same as, uh, as a bit ship breaking, breaking, which is another right. um, pretty dirty... In India, which yeah, is... And, 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 and Bangladesh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're going to have to go, Patty, but we'll, right. we'll certainly yep. talk to you again shortly. Um, and uh, thanks, well, thanks for your time today, obviously. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay, okay. Thanks. bye then. Okay. Bye. Patty Moriarty, Professor Moriarty out at Monash, and just took a bit of, couple of minutes to say next week, uh, Meg, it's May Day, May 1, our next program. Yes, indeed. And 3CR for the day will be doing May Day programming all day. And we and, get to be part of a special... And we're part of it, so yeah. Yeah, so, we're talking to some union... We'll, we'll, yes, we'll do some industrial transport stuff next week. John McPherson will be in. We'll talk. We'll mm-hmm. certainly relate it to um, to May Day and industrial issues. Yeah, sounds good. Let's finish up with a song by Dan Sultan. How about that? All right. <laughs> Yeah. Hey.